Some years ago, I was in Burma doing some personal practice, and I um, went to give a report to my teacher, Sayadaw Pandita. So I entered the interview room, uh, walking slowly, mindfully. That was one of the ways he, um, he could kind of notice how mindful you were, not just by your report, but when you walked into the room. And in fact, if you weren't mindful, he'd make you get up and walk back out and come back in again, <laughs> more mindfully. So after I took my place and completed my three bows, uh, he asked me a question. He said, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? And I gave him a response in short, saying that it's a state of mind that's very spacious, balanced, it has calmness, and it's able to experience whatever is arising without reactivity, without the veil of attachment, aversion, or delusion. And he gave his usual approving response, which isn't really too much. You have to read a lot into it. Mm. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> But that means pretty good, you know. So uh, then he proceeded to say that equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness. Behind are the first pair of horses, faith and wisdom. And behind that are the second pair of horses, concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance and concentration and energy are in balance, the lead horse has little work. The lead horse has little work. So during that time period, he was giving all kinds of talks on balance and how to achieve balance in your practice and how equanimity was so important because in the factors of enlightenment, equanimity is a, a major factor. In fact, it's called the doorway to Nibbana the doorway to liberation. That's why it's so important to actually um, practice and incline the mind towards uh, equanimity in this Brahma-vihara phase of it. Because there is equanimity also that's developed in the vipassana phase, in the wisdom phase of our practice. So we want to have the lead horse of mindfulness have little work because mindfulness is uh, also kind of like the operative factor that begins and all along stays with us, and in the end, is, it's really the factor that, keep, that kind of um, launches us into uh, liberation. It's one of the major launching factors into liberation. So the chariot is led effortlessly, smoothly, and powerfully towards the liberating uh, heart, of the practice, where there is a uprooting, a weakening first, and then uprooting bit by bit of all greed, all hatred, and all delusion, ignorance in the mind. So this talk tonight is not directly about equanimity, but it's to kind of check in for yourselves these particular faculties that I'm going to speak about, these balancing factors, to see where you are strong, where you are weak, where there might be some 
balance within them that's needed. Because when these factors come together in a certain balance, they actually are the cause for equanimity, deep equanimity to arise. So they're very active powers, which in and of themselves can become stronger. And with continuity, they kind of balance out themselves. It's said that mindfulness is the balancing fact, is a major balancing factor also. So what happens is, um, and I'll go through each one of these and how they balance one another. So you can start checking for yourselves. In fact, sometimes when we're in our own um, practice, we really check out, you know, is, is mindfulness there? Is it continuous? Um, how about the factor of energy? How about the factor of concentration? Is there enough faith there? And all of this is producing deeper and deeper wisdom. So there's kind of a, a, um, a very natural checking out of what's there, what's weak, what's strong, what's in, out of balance. So what happens is they tend to coordinate or corral the potential for other supportive energies and qualities to come up into the mind stream to help us uh, stay on the path. Like Sally talked so beautifully last night about patience and renunciation. And we, sometimes we know that's, that's really needed, especially in our society where as Sally was saying, it's, you know, we're just expecting to push a button and then we'll be there. Um, in, it's interesting, in Asia, they talk a lot about laziness, you know, and you need more energy. But in the West, we're more strivers. It's like we want to get there really fast. And so um, we don't need to talk about laziness so much here. So these qualities, these energies, even like metta, which we've, we practiced first in this retreat, is a very important quality that tends to come up naturally in the mind stream when other qualities are there. My first teacher, Anagarika Munindra, um, he would always give examples, you know, that were kind of like in life. And so when he came to America at one time, um, I would take him to the beach because I, I live in Hawaii, and um, he would sit a, a, and just watch me go along the seashore with the children. And so one of them, the youngest one, would always kind of skip beside me as we were walking along. And then she would call to the others, come on, come with us, and all of that. And then one time I went back and sat next to Menindra on the beach, and he said, you know, these beautiful qualities of mind are just like your children. When one of them is there, all of them come together. He, he, he would take like every single moment that he could, every single experience that you would have in life and, um, and make it an example of the Dharma. It was really beautiful. The one thing, though, and we hear Joseph, one of our senior colleagues, say this is, you have to be careful, though, because if you'd ask him a question, he would take the whole day to answer that question. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, if people would come in the room and, um, you know, they'd come together and he'd be giving a talk, he wouldn't stop talking till the last person left. So just kind of a you know, a story about Manindra. He was full of the Dharma. He could tell, tell the Dharma from different angles, and um, it was wonderful to be around him. 
So these beautiful qualities which we've been trying to impart to you during this retreat, and some of them are harder to, uh, f- to kind of bring up and to kind of understand than others. Uh, like I said the other day, um, equanimity is a very high bar because it's really accepting things as they are. And it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to accept people in our families as they are, right? It's, accept to, it's hard to accept conditions around us as they are. But unless we really can do that and say that, it, it's, we're in some kind of denial, pushing it away, wanting it to be different, not see inside of us the kind of resistance we have to, to that total acceptance so that we can do something about it that's really wise just on a daily life basis. So ultimately, this quality of equanimity is very, very powerful. It's the quality that exists as a precursor to liberation. So it is quite a high bar for us to be able to face it at many different levels, at the everyday level and at the level of uh, our practice, in, in very deep, deep practice. So the Buddha points out that he does not himself nor anyone bestow these upon us. You know, it can't be like we just um, tell you about them and you agree. In fact, you know, you don't agree (laughs) a lot of the times. So you really have to understand it for yourself in order to um, do the practice deeply. Sometimes I know I'd be with Manindra and he, he'd be like a, a father to me or an uncle, and I'd, I'd say, well, I don't know about that. I, I, I just can't take this thing about uh, rebirth right now. You know, I don't understand that. And he would say, the Buddha only shows the way. The teachers only show the way. You really have to experience it for yourself. You really can't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. So... We have to understand um, that the potential for us to really to realize the Dhamma, the potential for us to go really deep so that we're in the Dharma, so that we're not bothered so much by things that occur within us and around us. These things are deep tendencies, all potentialities in the heart-mind already. And what we're trying to do is just to nourish them so that they really can all come out and be there for our benefit towards uh, liberating understanding. It's human nature for us to experience the, the highest truths. It's our potential. It's the potentiality of our minds. It's inherent in our nature. But we really have to um, look, see, see what's beneficial and go towards that. And what's not beneficial to renounce that. It's a very basic path of the Buddha. The Buddha said there were three things we need to do. You know, there were all these numbers of there's three of this and four of that. And one of the threes is uh, to develop the good, the beneficial, to, you know, go forth in that area, to renounce what isn't beneficial. And then upon that, we develop wisdom. So it, it's quite simple. So what we're doing here together is we're developing the good. We're developing equanimity, metta, patience, um, renunciation, as Sally spoke beautifully last night about. 
And we're also seeing if we can really come to ourselves when we take that second step and see what's going on in the heart, mind, in relationship to the act, you know, the um, experiences out on the outer realm, what's going on in here, then we really see for ourselves this that's coming up over and over again as a deep habit pattern, this is not beneficial. It's just feeding this habit through ignorance, denial all the time, or through adding another layer of judgment, of suffering to it. And so we really learn what's not beneficial but through experience. Somebody just can't tell you and you believe it. You really have to understand it for yourself. So we nurture the growth of what's beneficial and we don't nurture what's not beneficial. You know, we, and we actually can see this is not good for the heart-mind. It's a good reflection to make. Um, there were a couple, three of you today that were saying they could really see, um, each one of you could really see the truth of how it is when you feel um, guilty about something or have remorse about something. It's looking back on what you've done in your life and seeing that that isn't a good thing to practice, you know, to be in denial about or just let keep coming up about. Um, there was um, one very beautiful, um, I was most touched by, and I hope it's okay to say this, but I won't mention details. Um, someone came in and said, you know, a long time ago, before I even heard the words, uh, everyone has uh, their own journey. Um, and this was one of, the, one of the first times this person came to a retreat. Um, that there was um, someone very dear to that person who passed away. And um, that person said these words. Everyone has their own journey. And then in today, you know, in, in these days of learning, that's one of the phrases was a real kind of um, affirmation of that person's own wisdom that was coming out in them. And that was the one thing, a very important thing, that that person helped that person through that time period. So, um, you know, this is all to say that there's there are going to be different phrases or different ways that you're going to um, be able to reach that place of equanimity in yourself, and they might not those phrases may not be on the board or anything we say. They might be something like yeah and and this too, or like Achan Sumedho would say, one of our great teachers, um, it's like this. You know, whatever comes up in the mind, whatever comes up outwardly or inwardly, it's just like saying, okay, it's like this. It's just like saying, this is true. I'm not going to be in denial about it anymore. It's fierce. You know, equanimity is really a fierce, a fierce uh, practice to do because you really have to face the reality of life. You really can't get away from it. So this is what one of our um, elder monks, Bhikkhu Bodhi, says. He's an American uh, Theravadan Buddhist monk who was ordained and lived in Sri Lanka and helped um, the great Uniyanaponika 
um, translate a lot of the beautiful books we have of the translations of the Buddha's words. So he said that, um, let me read this to you. Left to itself, without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself, dark forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are called the kilesas, the defilements or the hindrances. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we're not our own masters but passive pawns driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our appetites, and this is accomplished precisely by the development of the five spiritual faculties, which are the balancing factors which really deepen and strengthen also equanimity. So, um, you know, our, our teachers, our elders, and there's been quite a um, bit of gratitude of late among us who are in the Dharma, um, who have had elders uh, in, you know, in the, in the robes from Thailand, from Sri Lanka, from um, Burma, because they didn't pull any punches. You know, they just said it like it is. Instead of like, you know, tiptoeing around things and trying to make it soft so you could really get it. I mean, we do that too, but it's really, you really have to have a strong heart sometimes to take the Dhamma understandings. And it makes us stronger by, by listening and taking it in. So each of these five faculties that I'm going to speak about, performs uh, their own functions. They naturally, in and of themselves, establish balance and re-establish balance, and they give strength to all the others. So I want to look at one factor at a time and to see how one is a cause for another condition to arise. So starting with faith, just in a very simple way, Um, you can see that when we have faith, it brings forth the confidence to put forth the energy to do our practice. So if we didn't have faith in what we were doing, I mean, all of us have a pretty kind of strong level of faith to actually be here and do this kind of practice. It takes a lot of confidence to do this. And so sometimes I know we can feel kind of weak and um, not up to par with things, but Actually, for you to act, be here, is it takes a lot of strong faith just to be here, to come to the hall all the time and do your walking practice and listen to the Dharma. And because of that faith, we can put forth the energy to do what we need to do. Because of the energy that we put forth, which we're guiding you to be in a relaxed, sustained way, Uh, not too lax so that it's casual, but not too striving so that you get all tense, but somewhere in between, a kind of um, a gentle, uh, relaxed pace that you can take, brings about that mindful awareness that um, we're 
we need to have moment to moment to see things as they are. So when that continuity of awareness is there in, in our practice that we do in the, like this morning, on our moment to moment changing experience, that brings about a kind of concentration, a kind of what we call maybe vipassana concentration. It's not on one particular object, it's on changing objects. And when we do the equanimity, it's all around equanimity. It's all about developing equanimity. So um, that's more of a concentration practice. Like when we do metta, it's more of a concentration practice. So the continuity of awareness on these changing objects brings about concentration. And then what the concentration does is it steadies and unifies the mind, the mind's energy, it brings it together, and it creates this kind of magnifying glass um, experience where uh, in each moment there's an ability to really see what's going on at great depth. It's not just at the surface level. It really sees the comings and goings of each moment. It sees a pixelated view of reality, where there's even space in between. You know, so it's, it's not seeing things as solid. And then, so that starts to pierce through the illusion of solidity and permanence when that happens, when there's this kind of magnifying glass of um, that moment-to-moment concentration on each present moment that's changing and passing by. So what happens is that uh, it begins to support the deepening of wisdom. And so this is the the other factor, the last factor in, in this particular progression of the five. So one of the deepenings that happens when the wisdom opens up is that there's a beginning of uh, the ability to open to the Four Noble Truths. This is how kind of one thing weaves into another. This is why Manindra's talks would never end, because (laughs) one thing would lead to another. But we will stop. (laughs) So it supports the first noble truth that we open to. I mean, we all see when we come come to, um, especially come to ourselves in the equanimity practice and we see what's going on in relationship to what's going on out there, there's a lot of suffering within. And uh, I don't say it from being apart from it. I'm, I'm very much part of knowing that experience firsthand. And so we open to the first noble truth of suffering where there's no not ignoring it. We're not avoiding it. We're not um, sweeping it under a rug of, of repression and delusion, really facing this first noble truth. And it's one of the reasons why I really love the teachings of the Buddha because when I first heard the teachings and it, it was about the Four Noble Truths, I realized somebody is finally saying where I'm starting from instead of where I need to end up, where it's almost unreachable. You know, there's a description of, I'm starting from this place. And it was a confirmation, an affirmation of what I was actually experiencing, which was dukkha, you know, pain. 
And so to really be affirmed in that was was a, a very important place for me. And when I heard that, I knew I was home in my practice, in that practice. And the second noble truth um, is that there is a cause to suffering. Like, okay, what, you know, where do I go with this now? And to see where the cause is, and the cause is clinging and craving, and the opposite of that, which can be aversion and fear, which is kind of two sides of the same coin. So the first noble truth is to be investigated. The second noble truth of clinging, craving is to be relinquished. And the third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering. So a lot of people come to the path of the Dharma and say, yeah, I know you guys always talk about suffering and um, you know that's what this is all about, so I'm facing it. So <laughs> I had to remind... Um, some people that, that, well, that isn't the whole thing. I mean, the Buddha also said the third noble truth, that there is an end, and so gave some hope and um, kind of a path that we can go on that leads to some place that's really relieving. And so this um, third noble truth is to be realized, and the end is, is nibbana, or the unconditioned. And the fourth noble truth is there is a path to the end of suffering. And that path is the Eightfold Noble Path. And they say that that is something we have to, to know for ourselves, to walk ourselves. It's not another thing that we we're waiting for someone to bestow upon us. So this, of course, is a deepening of wisdom. This is one of the aspects of the deepening of wisdom, when you understand um, what the Four Noble Truths really mean. And an, another wisdom understanding is th- to understand the cause and effect relationship of, that we're living in this relative level of life. So to understand karma is a wisdom. So when we deepen into this way, it leads to greater and greater faith. So faith brings about energy, which, brings, which kindles mindfulness, which also brings more concentration with the moment-to-moment uh, mindfulness on changing objects, which brings about wisdom. And then when we have this participatory wisdom, it also deepens our own faith. So then the whole process starts all over again, that in, incredible, ever-deepening process begins again and again. It's a continuous cycle. So we begin to see that faith and wisdom are in balance with one another. And I'll talk about that uh, balance and, and how those balance out in a minute. And then concentration and energy are in some kind of balance. So when those two are in balance, you know, those pairs of horses, it makes um, mindfulness work more easily and more effectively and strongly. So I'd like to um, talk about faith to fill that out a little more. When I was last practicing, um, last year I, I did a retreat with one of my other teachers, Utejaniya, and in an interview 
I remarked that of the five spiritual faculties, I was noticing that faith is the one that I notice most these days. And it's not about doubt in the Dharma. It's, for me, it's about doubt. Can I face what I need to face in life? You know, it's sometimes, like with all of you, I know, it's, it's really hard when you speak about what's going on in your lives. I can really relate. Sometimes you're almost saying exactly what I might say. You know, it's really hard to face the realities of life. And so when, when I said to this teacher I, that um, I really notice that faith is more prevalent and it's something, and I know it's something that I need more these days, my faith in the capacity that I can get through certain things in my life, certain episodes of my life. And he said that he, he never put it in words before. And this was the first time he actually was thinking about putting it in words but he sees that by experience, by his own experience, that when one faculty becomes stronger, it lifts all the other ones to the same degree. So I thought, well, this is good news because, you know, <laughs> I'd really like to get to that wisdom part really fast. <laughs> uh, but it, w- it will lift all the other ones, you know, that come in between, the faith part and the wisdom part. There's all the ones in between that. So it's like... Faith provides the inspiration so that when we can have the intention to aspire to something greater than we are now or to deepening our practice more, it plants the seeds of confidence that it's possible to be liberated from these habit patterns that we have. And it's possible to see that we don't have to be uh, pawns in this you know, game of um, ignorance and delusion that we're all kind of um, sometimes uh, the pawn of because we just do it by habit pattern. Manindra would say to me, you know, sometimes it's like we're just a puppet, like this uh, ignorance pulls this string and then we just follow it and it pulls the other string and we just follow that, you know, and it's not like we're even investigating. Is this really true or not? Is this an empty echo of the mind just speaking to us or... Is this um, a habit pattern? We don't, even, we don't even question it sometimes. We just kind of, whatever the thought comes up, it's just believable, almost. So, um, when we plant those seeds of confidence, we're, we're not letting the old habit patterns um, sway us. We really question, you know, is that really a, uh, a thought that's, onward leading, is it beneficial? Or is it just the same old I'm not good enough thought? You know, that we just kind of, okay, you know, it's just easier to kind of fall in a puddle than stand up and say, no, I'm going to face this. So it, it steers the mind away from doubt and it weakens it by the presence of faith because uh, faith is the opposite of doubt and it overcomes doubt. If doubt does arise, then there's a, the clear voice that says, oh, it's just a thought of doubt, of doubt in the mind. Doubt is the hardest one of the five hindrances because it's so much more filled with delusion. It's practically all delusion. So, you know, we're thinking with delusion that this, I have doubt about this, about that. 
And it's so hard to see through that doubt because what's really present is a lot of delusion, more than greed and hatred. Delusion is so much harder to see than greed and hatred. Greed and hatred stand out a lot more. But doubt is like, you know, it's, it's just in the background, lurking. So when faith is stronger, it's willing to take the next step and it keeps its eye on the highest aspiration that we have. But it knows it has to take one step at a time. It can't, um, you know, just kind of fly there where we want to get there. I can't, um, I know our, our senior um, elder uh, colleague says this, I've heard him say it in many Dharma talks, the first step depends on the last. You know, what we know our aspiration to be. And the last step depends on the first. Because if we don't take that first step, and the second step, we'll never get there. So we really have to pay attention to the present moment and really keep in mind what our aspiration is. So we're not paralyzed or confused by doubt. We just know that, okay, it's a moment of doubt. Let's be really clear about what's happening right now. So faith that we can withstand the difficulties any path would present. So we need to have our faith so strong that no matter what we aspire to or what we intend to aspire to, is um, we have enough faith to stay on that path, to stay with it one step at a time. I remember going to um, this teacher of mine, Sayadaw Upandita. It was the first time I was practicing with him. I did a month long of practice um, with him in Australia. And I was really, um, it was very, very hard time. I, I'd already gone through at least a couple of rolling of up the mat times and wanted to go home. And this time it was, there was really so much suffering. There was so, it, it was beyond suffering of the family. It was kind that existential kind of suffering that it's like uh, couldn't get away from anything. Just seeing was suffering, thinking was suffering, hearing was suffering, everything was. It was really awful. And so I just um, kind of fell on the ground and I said, I'm going home. I, I just want to. I'm not going to do this anymore. I just can't take it anymore. And they didn't... Another teacher was there, a Nepalese teacher. His name was Unianaponika too. And they started talking to each other in Burmese and um, didn't understand. And they were trying to figure out what to do with me, I think. So then finally, um, the Nepalese was the one who spoke. And he said when you don't know what to do, because I was telling them it happens in walking practice a lot, that I just see, I can't stand anything. And um, it wasn't aversion. It, it was really dukkha. And so um, he said, uh, what you do, Sayadawji says, is to get up very mindfully. He was so compassionate. And he said, and then you, you pull up your socks you bend down mindfully, pull up your socks and get up, and then you begin again. And I said, okay, you know. <laughs> so I said, okay, thank you. And that's what I did. 
And until this day, you know, when I'm practicing and I have a hard time, it's like, okay, just bend down. And even if I'm not wearing any socks, you know, just try to do the action. And the beginning again action is the most important thing in, in the faith part of practice. So, so I experience faith as devotion, devotion to my practice, you know, devotion to the, the trajectory that I've set out for myself. No, it's not, it's not easy when you, you really want to be fully liberated in this life. Um, sometimes I think I scratch my head and maybe that's bringing on too much suffering right now. Maybe I should lower my bar a little bit. <laughs> So, um, the devotion to our path really helps us because it gives us a gift of lessening of pride. You know, and how do we do that? Like when I bow to the Buddha, when Sally and I bow to the Buddha, um, for me, I'm, when I'm bowing, I'm, I'm taking refuge in, in the historical Buddha that gave us the teachings, who is my root teacher, and the Dhamma, which is uh, the truth of how things are, and the Sangha, those people around me that inspire me to keep going, in, including somebody like Sally, you know, spiritual friend, and some of you here. So um, it's really, really important to have that kind of devotion. And, you know, when you bow down, I come from Hawaii, so there's a lot of Asian people who are Buddhists. At one time, there were more Buddhists than than Christians. I don't know what the population is now, but the bowing down was really important. And I remember one Japanese lady telling me that when you when you bow down to the Buddha, it's like you're emptying yourself out and you're saying you're making yourself empty of your pride and empty of you, you know, I'm the one who knows. And maybe just take some advice from um, something that could give you a path to to great to less suffering and so um, that's what that devotion takes so we have faith in three areas basically faith in the teaching faith in our teachers faith in ourselves and the hardest one for most people is faith in ourselves faith to actually do the practice and sometimes during the day it, it does come up that you know, we feel like we can't go on. But we do. Uh, but in that moment, it's good to just feel that. You know, can't go on. It's just kind of a weakening of faith. It's not so strong, then it's okay. Just know that moment. So there's this beautiful story um, in the suttas of a group of people in India, the Kalama the Kalamas, who were confused because so many spiritual teachers were coming through their area and they didn't know whose advice to follow. And so they were uncertain and they had doubts. So they went to this new teacher, the Buddha, that had come through and they asked him, what do we do? And this is what we're experiencing. And the Buddha said to them, he replied, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated learning nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in scripture, nor upon specious reasoning, nor upon a bias that has been pondered over, or another's seeming ability, nor upon consideration, this monk is our teacher, 
But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, blamable, they lead to harm and ill will, then abandon them. When you know for yourselves that these things are wholesome, not blamable, praised by the wise, lead to benefit and happiness, then enter on and abide in them. So in other words, you have to test it out for yourself to know the way. And that's what sada means. Sada is the Pali word for faith, and it means to place your heart upon. That's one of the deeper meanings of faith, to place your heart upon something. And so it's kind of like you know it from your heart, not from your intellect. So <clears throat> this is faith, and um, it's something that when you have devotion to your, your own uh, faith to be in practice, to realize the truth of life, you, you do have the willingness to open to everything and anything. And sometimes it's hard, but you still pull through. So the second factor is energy. And um, faith brings a confidence and trust to put forth energy in the practice. And so we do that. We take one step at a time, that kind of energy. It's, it's, um, it's gentle, persevering energy. So remember the gentle part. It's not like a push to do it. Um, it requires mental energy as well as physical energy. And they both help one another. So you have to eat the right, you know, eat the right food, the right amount of food. You have to get good rest. You know, these all things for your, for your physical energy and your mental energy too. And, and to keep the continuity of your knowing, of your mindfulness up. This keeps your, your mental energy um, from going on the wrong path of delusion. It stays in the path of seeing things as they are. So, of course, this takes um, the willingness to, to keep doing it, to be patient with it. Virya, virya, is this patient, persevering, sustaining energy. And that's how it's described, patient, persevering, sustaining energy on the path. It's not a big push. Our teacher, one of our teachers, Utejaniya, would say, practice is not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. You know, you really just have to keep on, keeping on. I've told this story to some of you that um, last year and this year, I decided to go on a, on a walk uh, in the Camino de Santiago. And I last year I did... Uh, 300 miles and the year before that I did 200 miles of it and I just wanted to be able to have that sustaining just walk on the earth and be at that level of of experience where things aren't going so fast and I remembered all the time you know I I would just uh, you know roll out of bed at one of the albergues I was staying at and then it, it would be like I just my feet and my body would ache so much from walking maybe up to, you know, 20 kilometers a day or more sometimes. And um, it, it would be like, sometimes I couldn't even walk. But I had to just keep going, keep going. And that it took that gentle, persevering effort to keep on on the path. 
So it was really a marathon for me. And it took that, it wasn't just a long trip. (laughs) It was a long, it takes this long, enduring mindset to be able to do that. So this um, strength, this wirya, is um, that mindfulness that's able to have that continuity over and over again on the path. So that's faith and energy. And then it brings you to the third spiritual faculty, which in Pali is called sati. Um, Sati, very um, simply uh, described or defined is mindfulness. It's sometimes we use the word awareness too, so... I like to use both words, mindful awareness. And it's not just mindfulness or awareness, but it's actually remembering to be mindful. I mean, you know, when when we give the instructions, or I'm a yogi like you are, I'm a yogi sometimes in the year, and when I love it when people give the instructions because then it's like, okay, yeah, okay, be mindful of the breath. And somebody's, you know, reminding me. And then they go through all the instructions, and as soon as they stop, it's like, oh, i got to do it myself now. You know? and to, so to remember to be mindful is um, not so easy. You know, we forget a lot of the times. But actually, when you keep the continuity up, something happens called effortless mindfulness. And it's actually a very distinct place in practice that happens in the process of the progress of insight, where mindfulness just, you can't help but being mindful. And you're so mindful that sometimes you can't even sleep, or, you know, you don't sleep very much. Because some people, they come to practice, and in case this is happening to you, um, you know, you, you think you have to get about eight hours sleep or six hours sleep, as as Sally was talking about during the first uh, days of our practice here together. And and then when you're only getting four hours, you're thinking, oh no, you know, it's not enough. But actually, because as you become more mindful, the mind is less tired, and so you don't need as much sleep. So just believe it. If you get up in the morning, um, uh, you know, wake up, get up, instead of, you know, just trying to think you have to get a particular amount of hours and see how that works for you. And maybe that will keep up the continuity of your practice more. So it's being, it's remembering to be aware of your present moment experience. It's not about remembering the past or the future, of course. But if the past comes up, we know that we're remembering the past. If the future comes up and we're planning, there's a knowing or, or a remembering or a mindfulness that planning is happening. So this is um, the mindfulness factor, which is really important. It's the opposite of negligence, of mindless negligence. Why do we become wise? You know, because we're aware of what's going on. We're not in ignorance um, Wisdom is the opposite of ignorance. So what makes um, a wisdom come about is being mindful because that dispels the ignorance. One knows what's going on in the present moment. So it's said that um, 
mindfulness is likened very much to a mirror. You know, there's nothing in the mirror that pushes away what it doesn't like or, or come, goes out with a hand and holds on to what's likable or pleasant. The mirror just reflects what's going on. And so mindfulness is likened to a very clean, pristine mirror, which just reflects basically the truth of experience, that moment's experience. It's not clouded by anything, not clouded by any of the five hindrances. And so sometimes it's called bare attention. And it's called that way in our tradition because there's nothing added. You know, there's just this... Um, reflection of what's going on in the moment and we don't add an opinion to it that it's good or bad or that it's right or wrong or that um, this is even good practice or bad practice it's just seeing things as they are which actually in the practice of equanimity that's what we're also um, uh, doing we're bringing that energy to be able to see things as they are not through the lens of uh, reactivity. And so this uh, equanimity is really strengthening that mindfulness. So not clouded or tinged by delusion or aversion. And um, it's a very, uh, sometimes it's expressed as non-negligence because we're not neglecting the present moment. This is from the Dhammapada. Um, number 26, and this is a collection of the precious words of the Buddha. The foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. So another word for mindfulness is non-negligence. It's at careful attention at the general activities level and also at the micro-moment level to see the truth of reality even in the micro moments of seeing the pixelated view of what's happening moment to moment to moment. So we all have that potential, that inherent potential to open to that, the deepest view of reality, which requires such faith and energy and that mindfulness and that opens to that liberating wisdom to be able to see things as they really are instead of how what we want them to be or how we don't like how it is. So on an everyday level, um, what I experience when I see someone that has a strong quality of awareness around them, and this person doesn't even have to be in the Dhamma. You know, there are a lot of people I know that um, are just kind of naturally aware and they're naturally just good people. And so I, I see them and say, they're not only mindful, but they have a beautiful mind. You, they express themselves, and what comes out of their words and their behavior is really beautiful. So, you know, they're aware of what causes happiness and what causes suffering to some degree. And they go in the, on the path of what's beneficial, So you get a sense that it's a quality that actually participates in life's events. It's not about just sitting here in stillness and saying, oh yeah, you know, rising, falling, and um, and just seeing things arise and pass away. 
that when we go out into daily life, we're, we're able to understand that deeply. And so there's lessening of a holding on to how things need to be, a lessening of a pushing away of when we don't like things or we don't think they're in line with how we think life should be. So there's a quality that, um, what that I see in people that can actually participate in life's events and recognizes them at the same time, you know, not being distant from them. But for example, um, when one is going through a grieving process, which is a, a healthy process to go through, one can feel loss and feel the grieving process, be very close to it, and yet not be um, identified with it. You know, not, not have this wrong idea that, oh, this grieving is me and it's mine and it's how I'll always be. It's just being known as these are moments that come up or sad moments because of loss. And so, um, you know, when people cry, they often think, oh, you might think that I'm, you know, identified with my grieving or loss, but it's not true. You know, tears come from happiness and tears come from sadness, too. And so there can be an awareness of all that happening without being lost in it or drowned in it. So, um, also like with fear, fear can come up and we don't need to be paralyzed or blinded by it. We can actually still act and know that fear is there, but we're, we're acting, we're doing something that's positive, that's helpful for ourselves or others. So mindful awareness allows the full experience of being human. It allows the experience of being with the feelings and emotions that are there. And I love what Manindra would say when I would see him express, you know, some kind of dismay at the way he wasn't particularly happy about the curry I cooked for him or something like that. And I would say, Manindraji, are are you upset? Are you... Because his... He would have this way, his lips would go down a little bit. And he would say something like, upsetness is there, but I am not upset. You know, it wasn't like he was identified with it. Now, don't try to say that to your partner because it won't go over as good as it went over with me. (laughs) Um, Whenever I've heard that from, you know, a partner, I think... Uh, it's not very good. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, there's a, a book um, written about the paramis through Manindra's eyes that's called Living Life Fully because he really expressed how he could live life fully and still be with all of that. And then, you know, he would also say, as I told you the other night, um, my path is not yet finished. You know, he would... He, he still had some uprooting to do of greed, hatred, and delusion. He, he was pretty along the path, but not complete. So he said, so, and then the faculty of concentration, it provides that stability of mind that really holds the beam of mindful awareness steady on that momentary object, and then on that experience, and then on that experience when you get to the pixelated view And then when you're in kind of an everyday experience, you can just see the swirling of emotions that goes on in our 
in our mind-body. And it's just like, okay, that's the way it is. You know, I, how can I say, stop this river? You know, just, will you please obey my command? It doesn't do it. It is just, you know, we have to live in alignment with how things are. And I can't always do that either. But we see the swirl of emotions in here. We see the, all the discrepancies or the disillusionments we have about life out there. And it, it is the way it is. I mean, until I can totally accept that, I can't really do anything um, with a, a lot of you know, power living in alignment with it and really helping it along to a better place. They say it takes acceptance first before we can really take a step, a wise step. So that concentration really helps us, and it channels all of the energy right to wisdom so that it's the wisdom that becomes liberating. We see deeply how things are. We know what's important to us to keep the harmony in our lives by the precepts. We understand the laws of cause and effect, and more and more we understand um, the non-permanence uh, of everything. We understand the non-self of everything, the not-self of everything. We understand that um, we can't deem something or anything or a person or a relationship or anything in life to be permanently happy and joyful. Because everything in one way or another, through death, through parting, through change, comes to an end with objects, with people in life. So that dukkha means there isn't a, you know, permanent satisfaction in anything. There, there are moments, yes, but it isn't going to last forever. So unless we start living in alignment with that, we're just always going to suffer. So I love what Utejaniya says, that wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between the skillful and the unskillful, and clearly sees with understanding which path to take. So... This wisdom is not intellectual wisdom. It's not book knowledge. It's experiential wisdom. It's a wisdom we get by really facing life as it is. And that's what equanimity is. Facing life as it is. And when we can look for ourselves to see, are these in, are these in balance? Are faith and wisdom in balance? Not the wisdom where we're intoxicated by knowledge, but the wisdom where we're really understanding it from our own experience. And uh, our energy and uh, effort energy and concentration and balance, that ability to move and to flow with things as they are, you know, mentally and physically, and also to have some degree of stillness and that even that moment-to-moment stillness, you know, are those two in balance. Because when those two pairs are in balance and mindfulness becomes much more easy and that mindfulness um, actually leads to that place of liberation because of that equanimity that is developed in that whole scene right there. 
So I'd like to um, just wrap everything up by Bhikkhu Bodhi's words um, about these uh, five spiritual faculties, which actually, you know, they, when they become stronger, they become the five powers. Instead of the five balancing faculties, they become the five powers. So, he says, these five come to fullest maturity in the contemplative development of insight. In this process, the faculty of faith provides the element of inspiration, which steers the mind away from doubt and settles it with serene trust. The faculty of energy kindles the fire of sustained endeavor that burns up obstructions and brings to maturity the factors that ripen awakening. The faculty of mindfulness contributes clear awareness, the antidote to carelessness and the prerequisite of of penetration into the depth of the Dharma. The faculty of concentration holds a beam of attention steadily focused on the rise and fall of bodily and mental events, calm and composed, and the faculty of wisdom, which the Buddha calls the crowning virtue among all the requisites of enlightenment, drives away the darkness of ignorance and lights up the true characteristics of phenomena. And so this is the end of the path, you know, the liberation through non-clinging, through wisdom, through the balancing of all these factors, through the power of equanimity. So these are all part of the Dharma, you know, that Sally and I are trying to weave in to your practice here. And just like to end with something very down to earth that one of um, my teachers, Ayakema, said, since all of us have these faculties within, there is every reason to cultivate them. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be the primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So I tried to fit in a lot of those teachings. (laughs) So my teachings come to an end at the night. You don't have to stay here. Now let's sit for a moment and let all those words just dissolve and just stay with your own heart-mind understanding, simple. It's just like this right now. Thank you for your kind attention. Some time for walking now, then we'll come back to chant.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.